peace, love, and a spiritual awakening that will save the world. Are you just watching episode 138, Jesus Revolution? Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And today we're talking about the newest hit. It really is a box office surprise. <laughs> the Jesus Revolution. I oh, I keep putting the in front of it. It's just... Yeah, I do too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the movie, Jesus Revolution. There we go. <laughs> yeah. So as of this recording, it is actually number five in the 2023 total box office, which is pretty amazing for a Christian film. Mm-hmm. And it's attracting fairly large audiences. I've gone to see it twice now. And both times, even though I was in a smaller theater, it was a nearly sold out theater both times. So I'm pretty surprised at how well it's doing. I actually had trouble getting tickets. Yeah. The original time I was going to go see it, I had to change the time that I was going to an earlier time because the Target showtime was already sold out. Well, nearly so. All the seats that were left were like the ones nobody wants to sit in. Yeah. Anyway, it is appearing to be a fairly popular movie. Now, the two showings that I went to, they were mostly full of people of my generation and older. So that speaks to the fact that this is not attracting a young audience, interestingly enough, but it is mm-hmm. attracting People who were possibly alive during that time or were, I guess, raised by people who were alive that time. Yeah. People who were impacted by it. Because I wasn't alive for it, but I was aware of it as I grew up. Mm. Yeah, see, I wasn't. This was a total news to me. And I asked my parents about it. They were actually would have been in a Christian university at the time that this was going on. And at least my, my dad didn't respond to my question, but my mom said she was unaware of any of that going on. So it was, it obviously must have been impacting certain secular universities and not hitting a lot of the Christian universities. Yeah. Because that's where the Christians already were. So they, I guess they didn't need revival. (laughs) A, A good friend of mine who's a theology professor at Regent University was actually living in California at the time of the Jesus Revolution. And Mm -hmm. we sat down over lunch and talked about my impressions from the movie and and how they actually, you know, played out. It was very enlightening, Mm -hmm. particularly, you know, when when you have to consider how much they cut from the movie and and where they might have used creative license and stuff like that. Yeah, and and we have to realize that the movie was based on Greg Laurie's book. So it would have Mm -hmm. been just his little slice of the Jesus Revolution. Yeah. Yep. And I think that that's an important critique to make because I looked up the actual Times article that was written that they kind of show at the end of the movie. And I've read the whole thing. And the mention of the stuff that actually went on in this movie was a very short paragraph of a like seven page article. (laughs) So (laughs) the fact that it was a nationwide movement that was hitting colleges and churches and on both sides of the country and even in the Midwest. And it wasn't just this little slice of California. The movie almost makes it look like that Lonnie Frisbee kind of started this thing, but I think it was he was just more a part of the movement kind of thing. Yeah, it definitely did give the impression, and I wouldn't even say intentionally, Mm -hmm. that Lonnie Frisbee was the genesis of the movement. Yeah, yeah, exactly, Catalyst. 
Yeah, it, it sort of had to for the story to to really gel. Right, the way they were telling it, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it is only a two-hour movie, so, I mean, I haven't looked up Greg Laurie's book, but I'm assuming that there was probably a lot left out, that they condensed a lot, and we just have to take the movie, number one, on face, you know, what it actually had in it, number two, as a representation of a historic movement. That's one of the reasons that I wanted to review this. We typically don't review Christian-made movies. And the reason why I felt this one fits really well for Are You Just Watching is because it is less a Christian movie and more a historical biopic. Mm -hmm. And it's dealing with real-life events. And so I thought from that standpoint, it gave us fodder for discussion. And it is definitely causing some schisms, I guess, in in the type of way that it's being received by Christians. So like when we dealt with last year, when we we talked about Redeeming Love, I think this is a similar kind of movie where it's yeah. it's a movie that, that there's definitely room to discuss from a Christian worldview because of the type of, of division that it causes. So yeah, there are strong opinions, but I, I feel like schism is you know, too strong a word since we're we're not talking the separation of Lutheran and Calvinism here. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it depends. Uh, you know, some of the camps might be very strongly against it, at least to the same extent that Redeeming Love was met with a great deal of yes. critique. Yeah, yeah. Before we get too far into our discussion, because that will be, I would say, a the central point of a lot of our, our mm-hmm. discussion. And, and I think Tim and I will actually be coming from two different positions on this. So it'll be an interesting discussion, not argument. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get to that, I do want to discuss the music just in passing. Interestingly enough, this is the first movie that we have ever reviewed that does not have a credited composer. And it, usually I say at this point, the score was composed by so-and-so and I <laughs> can't say his name. Because half of them I can't say. <laughs> Do we just want to give it to the Disney guy? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I could not find anywhere in the documentation for this movie that there was a credited score composer. They do have a song that was specifically arranged and produced and sung for this movie. And that is by Michael W. Smith. And I will play a little bit of that here. To me, a little of uh, it's an old song, one that most of us know very well, but it is also a very interesting production of it. So, has kind of an eerie feel to it. Yeah. Anyway, the rest of the music in this movie is just various songs of the era. So it just it, it basically is 
a musical representation of the late 60s, I think. Yeah. Very much so, actually. Yeah. As we get into our discussion of this movie, one of the things that every time I have told somebody in the last couple weeks that I was planning to, one, see the movie, two, do a podcast on it, I got a lot of people asking me what I thought of the movie and whether it was worth going to see. (laughs) And most of those people who questioned it were Christians, you know, people from church or work or whatever, that were Christians who are, I think, a little bit put off by the title. And I think that is understandable, because it's kind of like Jesus Revolution kind of strikes me the same way as Jesus Christ Superstar. It's like a... yeah a worldly twist on something that is to us sacred. And so it feels off somehow, like, you know, like there's a reason to be wary. I don't know. But usually my response has been just as I introduced this movie in the podcast, that it is a biopic of a historic movement that happened in the late 60s. And if you Mm -hmm. approach it like that, instead of going to a quote unquote Christian film, I think you'll be happy with overall, you know, the the feeling of the movie, the production of the movie, the story that's told in the movie, if you're not going expecting something like War Room, I think you're in a lot better shape. Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, that's the reason that I was much more willing to cut the movie some slack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, War Room was a good movie. I enjoyed it. It had a good story. But I felt like It was too bland a discussion because it didn't challenge the way we think beyond its core element, Mm -hmm. which was the need for prayer. And then you can get into the whole nitpickiness of, you know, some of the doctrinal differences between certain sects of Christianity, which is not necessarily the purpose of this podcast. So Exactly. And we may even get into a little bit of that in this discussion, because I do have some points I want to raise that our our usual brand would be considered nitpicking. So, Well, you know, they even discuss it a little bit. Yeah. In the movie, by contrasting Chuck Smith and Lonnie Frisbee. Right. And then I guess my only other comments from a, you know, initial impression is that, that there is a lot of stuff in this movie that is worth discussing, but I... As I have told others, I really don't see this as a gospel preaching movie, even though there's a lot of evangelism going on and a lot of baptism going on. I would call it a gospel light type of movie. And it's intriguing to me that so little of the gospel made it through. Who knows? Maybe there was more in it. Yeah, the actual gospel. (laughs) Yeah. But I do appreciate that it is drawing good audiences. The fact that it is number five right now after some pretty high end productions, I think, is a good message to Hollywood that they need to maybe step away from, you know, making such socially conscious movies and get back to Mm -hmm. what people actually want to see in the theater. I've been hearing some news about Netflix that they're starting to cancel a lot of their quote unquote woke shows Mm. and moving back to more family oriented entertainment that is speaking to a broader audience and instead of catering to the very loud minority. (laughs) Yeah, I'd like to see that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's some people out there that are saying, go go woke, go broke. And I think that, that, that <laughs> this movie is an indication of that. You know, it's like if, if you become so targeted with your product that you are mm-hmm. only speaking to a very marginalized 
audience, then it is going to hit you in the pocketbook because you are ignoring the rest of the people who want something different. And yeah. to honestly don't like to be socially preached to every time they and sit down. Exactly. They don't want to be insulted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just because they have differing opinions. Right. Yeah. It's interesting that they cast the same actor to play Lonnie that that plays Jesus and the Chosen. I I found that a little bit distracting, honestly. <laughs> well, and that is I think addressed mainly because Lonnie is supposedly a Jesus look like, which completely off the topic because we're not going to discuss this as a theme, but mm-hmm. I really think it's kind of funny to say that Lonnie looks like Jesus. How many of us have seen Jesus? How do we know what Jesus looks like? How do we know that this hippie persona with the long hair and the and whatever is what Jesus looked like? I mean, that's just one artist's representation of Jesus. So to say that he looks like Jesus is... Well, that's what's in all the pictures at church. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway... Uh. On an aside, I think that's a funny thing. It's like, yeah, and, and yeah. he was told that obviously because he, you know, he told everybody. And I think it was when he first stood up to speak. It's like people say, "I look like Jesus," and I, to be honest, I can't think anyone better to look like or something like that. <laughs> you know, I went back and I looked at pictures, original pictures of Chuck Smith and Lonnie Greg Laurie and and Lonnie Frisbee. Yeah, and the actor looks much more like the classical representation of Jesus than Lonnie mm-hmm. Frisbee did. But, yeah. I mean, we're talking a very it's, different cultural time, so I can see where they might have gotten that from. Well, I think it was just the long-haired hippie look. I think yeah. for some reason <laughs> people thought that Jesus was a long-haired hippie. <laughs> and, you know, Jesus would never, culturally, he never would have gone around in bare feet. Because the feet mm. were a very dirty thing in Jewish traditions. Yeah. Anyway, way off topic now. So I gave this film a lot more leeway because of the historical nature of it, that it was mm-hmm. doing its best to tell a a real story of a very important part of history. I mean, I can't think of anything else that Hollywood has ever put out that actually talked to actual revival. and. Mm-hmm. The fact that it came out the same time that... Asbury? Yes. Thank you. I couldn't remember the name. Right when we're seeing the revival there, I thought was not coincidental. <laughs> yeah, not coincidental. Uh, I would agree with you on that. I'm also a diehard fan of Kelsey Grammer. Love him. <laughs> yeah. He's one of the, the actors out there that I feel has great chops for both dramatic and comic, and his comic timing is... Never disappointing. Plus, you know, I literally grew up watching him. <laughs> it it saddens me so much that I was telling everybody, all the young people that I work with at work about, you know, Kelsey Grammer being, you know, headlined in this movie and how, you know, it was really cool to see a, a well-known actor, you know, play in a quote-unquote Christian mm-hmm. movie. And they all went, who? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> No, it broke my heart. <laughs> but did they get it as soon as you said, you know, Fraser Crane? No, they didn't. Uh, it's terrible. completely a different generation. Yeah. Yep. Uh, we failed. We failed. <laughs> so overall, I really, I did enjoy the movie. It was a movie that really makes you think. And in the context of this movie, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. They 
presented the relationship between Chuck Smith and Lonnie Frisbee in such a way that made me feel proud, honestly, because here we had Chuck Smith, a conservative white shirt, button-down white shirt, tie-wearing pastor, and Lonnie. Yeah. The way it showed them working together and working off their strengths, yet clearly serving different natures but the same God, I thought, was really encouraging. And, you know, they also showed folks who who didn't accept the influx of the hippies or the post-hippies or, you know, the Lonnie Frisbee's crowd into the church that Chuck Smith was running. And as much as I love to say that clearly that would never happen, yeah, it would. And I'd wager a guess that the numbers of people who walked out as Chuck Smith brought in the hippie crowd was probably a lot more because I suspect the church was probably a little bigger than they portray it in the movie. Hmm. When I watched it the second time, I was actually paying attention to details that I didn't see the first time. Mm-hmm. And there was one of those old-fashioned attendance oh, the, signs. Yeah, the wooden the wooden board where on one mm-hmm. side they have the attendance, the other side they have the hymns. Well, this one, it was I think it was offering an attendance. But anyway, it they were made sure to change that sign as as it progressed through the movie. The previous Sunday's attendance was nineteen. The day that Lonnie showed up with the hippies, and then the next Sunday's was forty two. And it said 74 after that. And then the one after that was the service before they moved out to the tent. Uh-huh. And it was a three-digit number, but it was never in focus, so I couldn't read oh. what it said. That's yeah. very observant of you. I wanted to agree with you. I feel like it was a missed opportunity to not put more of the actual gospel in, not lay the foundation of the gospel that we're all sinners and are completely unworthy of God without Mm -hmm. the saving grace of Christ. Yeah. But they focused a lot more on the searching, and I I guess I can understand the creative reason to do that. Well, they didn't want it to be a preachy movie, I'm assuming, but I also think it might also have been a fault of the actual movement as well. Ah, yeah. It's hard to, to put something into a movie if it's not actually there in real life. And that will come up in a thematic discussion later on right. in this episode. Two final comments from me. One thing that really bugged me in the movie, and this actually was one of the things that I discussed with Professor Henderson, was the movie made it seem like Greg Laurie at the end where Chuck gives him the keys to the church, made it seem like he was just tagging along for the entire thing but never had any actual training. Mm-hmm. It made it appear like he was reaching out for more responsibility, but it was being denied him. But in reality, it was well known at the time that Chuck Smith had a very extensive training regiment that he did with his pastoral candidates, and that Greg Laurie went through all of that. So he was not, I don't know how qualified he was, but he definitely wasn't unquali- as unqualified as I felt the movie made him appear. Yeah. The movie just made it look like he felt a calling and wanted to be a pastor and then got a church. Yeah. Yeah. All without, you know, almost never cracking open a Bible in the movie. (laughs) Yeah. 
And the last thing I wanted to say was I really appreciated how they portrayed the relationship of Chuck and Kay Smith. Mm-hmm. The way that she encouraged him and even put him in his place when he needed it was exactly the type of partnership that a Christian marriage should be. And I wish marriage would be portrayed that way in more movies, but it's not. Mm. Yeah. The woman is the helpmeet and the the complementary relationship mm. filling in the holes of their partner. Yeah. So, you know, going into this movie, obviously, we both did quite a bit of research outside of just watching the movie. It wasn't just we we didn't want to just come at this movie from the aspect that, hey, you know, we're just going to take this at face value as, you know, the mm-hmm. word on what happened in the late 60s in California <laughs> and across the nation. So we have looked up some different articles and, you know, done some contrasting between mm-hmm. what was real and what was maybe blown out of proportion or shortened and condensed in order to yeah. fit inside a two-hour time. And one of the things that I did, and I've, I've already mentioned it, was that I did look up the Time Magazine article and, and read that. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes if everybody else is as curious as I was to mm. see what was actually published in that Time Magazine. But we did find some other articles as well. Yeah, so two things really surprised me. The first was the range of reactions that the movie was getting from Christians. Mm -hmm. There was one article from this thing called the Roy's Report, which I'd never heard of before, you know, doing research for this movie. The lady's last name is Roy's, and she's identifies herself as a Christian podcaster. And she's interviewing the accepted expert on Lonnie Frisbee, the guy who wrote the biography on Frisbee. And, you know, he did all the work. He did the research. He talked to Frisbee's wife at the time, Connie, and and all that. And I was shocked by the passive-aggressive vitriol that they were laying out in in this podcast. A number of times, the author referred to Jesus Revolution as Greg Laurie's selfie movie. And <laughs> I don't think they were trying to portray it in a bad light. They weren't, it wasn't a hit piece, but I really got the impression that they felt it was a movie that did not serve the truth and was overall just a bad thing. I guess I feel like Christians should be better than that. But I work for a Christian organization, and, you know, passive-aggressive is really the only way you can disagree with other people, you know, in a way yeah. that makes an impact. It, it's Sometimes it's enough to, to make me think that I'm in the wrong business. Mm. But anyway, so the Roy's report was particularly down on the movie, but then I saw, like, Kelsey Grammer talking to a couple – podcasters no they weren't podcasters it was an actual interview show where he was talking about his decision to do Jesus revolution and the emotions that doing the movie gave him and he actually started tearing up and uh, got really emotional and it was clear it was a labor of love for him so mm-hmm. it was very rewarding to see someone so invested in a movie that is at its core a christian movie even though it's not a gospel movie it's still a christian movie 
the other thing that surprised me was how people jumped on the movie for the stuff it left out. The mm-hmm. very first article that I read about it before I even saw the movie was this one from Uproxx, which is just a news source that shows up in one of my news feeds. And I don't think it's particularly reliable or anything like that. I, I really know very little about it. But this article was titled, The Jesus Revolution Review Ignores Some Key Facts. And the whole basis of the review was the movie is terrible because it completely ignores the fact that Lonnie Frisbee was a homosexual. And this is before I saw the movie. So I'm going into the movie expecting some reference to this. And there's no reference to it at all, to Mm -hmm. Frisbee's homosexuality, which was a surprise for me. And I think they intentionally left it out, to be honest. I, I'm they pretty did. sure they they intentionally yeah. left it out. Yeah. So I found this article where they explain why they chose to leave it out. And mm-hmm. the gist of it was that at this time, because this movie only covers two and a half years, I think, the beginning of 69 through the start of 70, the end of 71, somewhere in there. Yeah, something like that. They were saying at this point, There was no evidence to anyone that he had relapsed in his homosexuality. He was trying very hard to put it behind him. He was married in a, what by all accounts is a loving heterosexual relationship. And, well, the movie wasn't necessarily kind to Lonnie anyway. So, I mean, it's like, (laughs) there was no reason to, to dig up hurtful things in his past. And he did die of AIDS, which is Mm -hmm. sad all the way around. So many people did die of AIDS in the 80s and 90s. And I think it was as honest as it could be. But I think if they had drummed home the homosexuality thing, I think it not only would it may not have been appropriate to the era of the that's actually covered by the movie, but it may have also made it feel a little bit like it was attempting to be intersectional where, you know, it yeah. was making statements about homosexuality that were not the point of the movie at all. Exactly. And it would have distracted from the overall point of the actual movie. And we also don't know how much Greg Laurie was aware of the homosexuality and this was I mean, at the t- at that time, right, and right. this is his autobiography. So, yeah, if one of the interviews that Laurie gives, he he says that he wasn't aware that Frisbee had even relapsed until near the end of his life, until somebody had called to ask him about his opinion about Lonnie's being ousted from the church he started down in Florida, the Vineyard Church. Because it came out that he was going out at night and partying and mm-hmm. engaging in, in inappropriate behavior. Yeah. It is definitely an issue with a lot of biopic movies that things are left out. And I think it's safe to say that one of the reasons why this movie is what it is, is because it is specifically the point of view of Greg Laurie and what he knew what was going on. Mm -hmm. And even though it does deal with things, you know, between Chuck and Lonnie before Laurie was even part of the picture, I I think it was because he was informed of that stuff, you know, by people involved. So yeah, I I think that in, in this instance, this little tiny slice of the Jesus revolution is, 
is really telling a story about Greg Laurie. And if you try to push it into telling a story about Chuck Smith or telling a story about Lonnie Frisbee or Kathy or any of the other people that are in this movie, I think you you try to do too much because this is just that slice of that happenings, the founding of, well, not the founding because it was already there, of Chuck Smith's Calvary Chapel mm-hmm. and also the beginning of Greg Laurie's ministry. Yeah. Before we get into more thematic discussion, I do want to remind you that Are You Just Watching is listener supported. We want to remember to give thanks to our current patrons, Isaiah Santiano, Greg Hardy, Stephen Brown II, David Lefton, and Peter Chapman, who give to us monthly. We really appreciate their support and makes it possible for us to continue to do what we do. If you would like to also help us financially, you can do so by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash Patreon or patreon.com slash areyoujustwatching. And I used to offer a PayPal option, but I have dropped that because it's just easier to keep everything consolidated on Patreon. Mm -hmm. If you have any other ideas for how you would like to support us, please contact us about it. So... (laughs) Like you've mentioned, there is a great deal of discussion fodder in this movie. <laughs> yeah. As evidenced by the fact that it took us, you know, 30 minutes just to get through our initial impressions. But one of the things that I wanted to talk about, there's a, a saying at the end of the movie uh, that is not an original saying to the movie, but I couldn't find, you know, where the secular origin of the saying is. But it, it's it's from scripture, so I was able to go there. But near the end of the movie, Chuck Smith, the elder mentor, and Greg Laurie, the gentleman who the story is actually about, though you can't really tell that in in a good portion of the movie, they're overlooking some ongoing baptisms in the ocean, which was a, a key image of the whole Jesus revolution. And Greg expresses concern over his preparedness to lead a church. And Chuck tells him not to worry that, quote, God has a long history of working through flawed people. And that, of course, is a paraphrase of the message in the first part of Second Corinthians twelve nine, And that reads, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weakness, so that Christ's power may reside in me. The whole Bible is a story of God working through flawed people, because as sinners, we're all flawed. And so when God works through us, he's working through flawed people, because none of us are perfect except Jesus. When you look in Hebrews 11, you know, at the heroes of the faith, I'm always astounded by the fact that Samson is in there because I always considered (laughs) Samson to be an utter jerk (laughs) up until the very end. And, you know, you look at David and he was a a murderer and an adulterer and Mm -hmm. basically every person in the Bible with one exception. (laughs) Very important. Yeah. Yeah. But the most important (laughs) is flawed in. Mm-hmm. many ways. It actually reminded me of an article by an author, theologian and author that I read by the name of Trevin Wax, where he is talking about the cancel culture and whether or not we should cancel people like Karl Barth, Martin Luther, and Jonathan Edwards. Barth was a unrepentant adulterer. 
And Martin Luther was infamously anti-Semitic. I don't remember what Jonathan Edwards did, but these guys are, you know, cornerstones of modern theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, calling Martin Luther modern is probably not right, but, you know, they're cornerstone theologians, particularly for evangelical faith. Yeah. But does that mean that we throw out everything that they say? Of course not. God is perfectly capable of using them if he was capable of using David, a murderer and adulterer, and calling him a man after my own heart. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, the people in this, because it's historical, they're presented in the movie in a very distorted way, but understandable, but distorted way. And, you know, they have different views on doctrine and how to serve God's purpose, but God uses them equally and effectively to serve his will. I mean, the revival of the Jesus Revolution regardless of how you look at the theology and you know the presentation of the, the pentecostal charismatic movement of frisbee versus the the more conservative approach of smith god is clearly using both aspects and lonnie frisbee in particular was a very flawed man and as i mentioned before he struggled with drugs and homosexuality But if even a little bit of this movie is true, and we know it is because we've done the research here, God used him to do miraculous things. So, you know, when we're considering how we should be serving, we shouldn't be even giving thought to how flawed we are, but how perfect God is. Yeah. And, you know, it's a miracle of epic proportions that he can use anyone to serve his will. Yeah. And that's, and, that's what I wanted to bring up. <laughs> and that's which, all our uh, time for today, folks. Yeah. Cause uh, I'm actually going to dispute some of that, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and as we were working on the sh- show outline, I knew that you and I were going to disagree on some of this, which is, is fine. I think that discre- yep, disagreement is healthy and being able to disagree in a cordial fashion is healthy as yep. well. So anyway, one of the quotes that I wrote down when I was watching this movie for the second time was when Lonnie was first talking to Chuck, and when Chuck got his opportunity to meet a hippie and asked him what all this stuff is about. Lonnie is talking about how his people, quote unquote, are sheep without a shepherd looking for the right things in all the wrong places, uh, drugs, mm-hmm. sex, alcohol, music, rebellion. And then he had a comment about the fact that they were using drugs as a quest for God. And one of the themes that kind of weaves through this movie is the concept of, you know, contrasting the love and peace and spiritual awakening of the hippie movement with mm-hmm the love and peace and spiritual awakening of following Christ. And in fact, this whole discussion that Lonnie's having with Chuck is interposed with Greg's experience going to one of the big hippie concerts, you know, where they're dropping drugs from the airplanes and having a spiritual awakening that is completely drug driven. Yeah. It's definitely something in this movie that, that they're going for is that the hippie generation is looking for God in all the wrong places. 
And it's really interesting because, as I think I've mentioned in previous episodes, I've started following and watching this YouTube program called Timcast IRL. And one of the people who frequents on that show, which is an mm-hmm. every weeknight, two-hour program of basically just a bunch of people sitting around a table talking about political headlines. But one of the regulars, and I've mentioned him before, is Ian Crossland. And he is in every way, shape, and form a hippie. And Uh. when he gets off on talking about spiritual matters, you can tell that most of his revelations in life were drug-driven. And he admits that he's he has his clearest thoughts when he's high. And so... When I went into this movie, it was really kind of funny because I was seeing what they were saying in this movie I've seen personified in Ian Crossland Uh. because he definitely demonstrates this idea of the spiritualness being brought to the fore by this out-of-body experience that you get from being high. And and you mm-hmm. think that you're just thinking all of these wonderful, clear, and just super yeah. enlightening thoughts. And they actually show that in one of the the scenes in the movie where Greg Laurie is with his friends and they're all high. And Greg mm-hmm. is just prating this absolute nonsense about like taking over all the institutions and righting all the wrongs and everything. And they, they really do a very good job of showing how empty these vastly enlightening thoughts you have yeah. when you high are. <laughs> I definitely really appreciated how they showed how the drug culture is both a siren song for the rebellious youth and at the mm-hmm. same time the hell that curses them because yeah they get so stuck in that mindset of experiences and being high and and needing that feeling of enlightenment it's almost like the standard by which they then measure all the other experiences they have in life and i think that that is also portrayed very strongly in this movie. And, you know, it's not like they just wandered into that either. There were leaders at the time, still Mm -hmm. are, for that matter, who preached, for actually a really good word for it, (laughs) the purpose of drugs. There's one very brief scene where somebody is on stage talking about Mm -hmm. drug use, and it turns out it was a name that you and I will recognize. I don't know if our younger listeners will. Timothy Leary. Mm-hmm. And he says the psychedelic experience is a confrontation with the divine. Mm-hmm. You define God as best you can. And yeah. I, I heard that. I was like, what? <laughs> Although, you know, that's what everybody tries to do is define God. The only people who even come close to getting it right are the ones who look to his word. Mm-hmm. to actually do it in with an informed manner. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I think that that is, you know, that classic idea of trying to fill the holes in your life with Exactly. all these things that only God can fill. And I think we see society constantly doing that. It's really interesting because this movie is definitely speaking against the hippie generation, which was our parents. But Mm -hmm. we're seeing the same thing in every generation because every generation rebels in some way. It's like you hit your teens and your early 20s and you Mm -hmm. think you know everything about how the world should be run. And you're really just an ignorant little snot-nosed brat 
that has no experience and don't hold back eve tell us how you really I feel mean, hey i was there too so <laughs> we point fingers at ourselves because every generation does it and you know the older generations are always prating you know on and on and on and complaining about how the younger generation is just uh-huh. so, you know so we see that it happens every generation the you know the chuck smiths of the 60s were doing it about the hippies and our generation is doing it about the what is the newest generation i i can't even keep track oh, of the I've generation lost track. So. z was yeah. is it z no i think they're on alpha now i i think oh, they've, they've, ran, they've rolled around yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So anyway, it's just, you know, you grow out of it. It's a stage that you grow out of. Yeah. So one of the things that I thought was interesting about this movie is to kind of look at some of the churches that were founded out of the Jesus Revolution, out of this Mm -hmm. specific movie. Obviously, Calvary Chapel got a huge boost. I bet. From the Jesus Revolution. And Greg Laurie started the Harvest Christian. I don't know whether that's just a church or a denomination. I think it's a denomination. And the churches that Lonnie Frisbee started in Florida are the ones we now know as the Vineyard Churches, which I know there I have one of those locally. I don't know about the Harvest Christian, but the Vineyards are pretty big, usually mega churches that are very seeker friendly. I don't know that much about Harvest Christian, and I do know quite a few people who have been involved in the Calvary Chapel movement, which tends to be a lot more conservative of the three at least as far as I know. But there's actually there's five vineyard churches within twenty five miles of me. Yeah. Well there's one just locally. I mean I could drive to it for church if I wanted to. Vineyard, from what I understand about it, and I granted I've never been to a vineyard service, so I can't speak yeah. to it, but I do know people who attend Vineyard. It's very much a seeker friendly, doctrine light type of church. And mm-hmm. I fear and and this is, I guess, where I might disagree with you a, a little bit about this movie. I fear that a lot of these churches that were started out of the Jesus Revolution might be teaching the wrong gospel. And, and I say that with a great deal of love and care, because when the wrong gospel is preached mm-hmm. and people are saved under the wrong gospel, they're not really saved. And uh, uh, but there you're wrong. If they're following the wrong Jesus, they are not saved. But it's not us who save people. It's no, not and our I pastors. Comple- I completely agree. I agree. I believe there can be people who can be saved regardless of whether they're hearing the wrong gospel. But right. the vast majority of people who are just without any amount of discernment mm-hmm. yep, and good teaching sit under the wrong gospel and never hear the real gospel and think they're saved. I think our church, to be honest, I honestly believe the Western church is full of a lot of people who think they're saved and they aren't. Yeah. And I think that doctrine light gospel messages contribute to that problem because how can they – I think that was even said in this movie. is like, how can they know if they've not been heard? And how can they hear if they've not been taught? That kind of thing. Yeah. It's concerning to me. And I speak this out of love 
because the seeker-friendly movement in megachurches is all experiential. It's you go for the music, you go for the experience, you go for the love and the genuine support that you get from people. And it makes a beautiful experience out of being around people who are at least outwardly personifying what it's like to be a Christian. Mm -hmm. But it's so easy to put on the behavior and be the rule follower, the one that meets the expectations of those watching, and be so totally far from Christ that you've never met him. And yeah. I've been researching a lot the Word of Faith movement and the Bethel Church and and Hillsong and, and some of these that are really well known for their great music. And yeah. there's been some very damning, and I use this in, in the not the bad word. Pure sense. <laughs> the purest sense of documentaries done about these movements and how they lead people astray. And it's concerning to me because the people just flock to them because they get the experience that they want and expect from mm-hmm. church. But they may not ever be truly meeting Christ there or God there in any true biblical sense. And I just, I caution discernment because I think that of all of the people who were being baptized in the Jesus revolution, how many of them were doing it because everybody else was doing it? How many of them entered the water and were told, like Greg was in this movie, you know, you're already here. Have you decided? You know, it's like, let's lay the pressure on you. You're you're out here (laughs) in the water. Have you made a decision? And I don't know. I would argue that it it is exactly the biblical method that God intends for people to be introduced to the message, except in Mark chapter 4, God tells the parable of the soils. And Mm -hmm. I think this is exactly what he's referring to. You know, they come into these experiential churches like Justin Bieber did. And some of them are going to be fertile soil. Some of them are going to be rocky ground. And some of them are going to be on the path where they just get, you know, stomped down. But my faith is in the fact that we are predestined to be God's people. And if, you know, a Hare Krishna walks into Hillsong (laughs) and... (laughs) actually turns out he turns out to be a person of this fertile soil then you know it doesn't it certainly would surprise me but it doesn't surprise god and if this movie is a way to get people curious then that's god's will and Mm -hmm. it provides the opportunity for the seed to grow and whether or not it's going to grow in, into salvation. We can't say, but, you know, as you and I have talked before, we both mm-hmm. acknowledge that it's our duty to do everything we can to help that seed grow. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not really speaking against the movie when I'm making these comments. Yeah. I'm more yeah, speaking yeah. about the movement in general and what came out of what happened, you know, during this Jesus quote unquote revolution. Yeah. Before we keep going, because my next few themes kind of all slide into each other, but I do want to remind you that you you could be listening to us live on Discord right now as we were recording this. 
You can get there by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash discord. That is an invitation to join our server. And once you're on, you can participate in some of our chat rooms. And, and it's really the best place to connect with Tim and I. If you post in any place on our discord server, you will most likely get within 24 hours, if not sooner, a response from one or both of us. So that is the best way to reach us. We do encourage you to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. And whenever you have the opportunity to share and review our podcast, we would appreciate the shares, especially like if you know of other Christians who like to watch movies and would be entertained by hearing two old fogies sit down and talk about them, <laughs> please share our podcast because that, that is how we grow as a podcast. All right. So continuing my discussion about this, one of the things that I thought was one of the useful finger pointings that this movie does <laughs> is the open door church. The idea of of churches being closed to certain types of people. And that is something that we're expressly forbidden to do in James 2. I didn't actually put verses on this. I memorized the book of James a long time ago because mm-hmm. it's just such a rich book about Christian living. And the interesting thing about James 2 is that once you start reading it, it's hard to stop. There's really no good place to stop because each verse kind of goes into the next. But and Each I'll start verse convicts it. you further and further. Yeah, yeah. You, it's a conviction that just digs. So <laughs> at the beginning of James 2, it says, My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in. If you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here at a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? And I'm going to have to stop there because I could keep going. Yeah. <laughs> but, you, you know, the, the very pointed accusation that is made at the beginning of, of this movie is that, you know, the traditional church of Calvary Chapel was not open to the hippies. And and that was proven because when they came in, there were prominent people in the church who, who told him they don't belong here. They came in barefoot. They're ruining the carpet. They are not contributing members <laughs> yeah. of the church. All of these things that portray a very materialistic way of viewing church, you know, that we're more concerned about the carpet. I, I just loved Pastor Chuck Smith's response to this. Like, oh, yes, we must save the carpet. Mm-hmm. It's a pointed reminder that our churches are supposed to be open to all those who seek Christ. But, and I'm going to add a little bit of a but on this, because Yes, it doesn't matter whether they're poor, it doesn't matter whether they're barefoot, it doesn't matter whether they're dressed nicely, whether they're tithing weekly, whether they're contributing to the, you know, financial needs of the church or whatever. Those things yeah. don't matter. What does matter for the fellowship of the body is that they love Christ. And I'm bringing my personal opinion, but I'm also going to use scripture to support it because Okay. That's the best way to do it. <laughs> My feeling is that the Western church especially has gotten to the point where we think that evangelism is done from the pulpit. 
And that is not where evangelism happens. Equipping the saints happens from the pulpit. When you go to church, it is to be discipled and equipped as believers and Mm -hmm. to have the fellowship of believers and to draw together in unity. If you're constantly bringing in the unsaved to your service, then that means that every service has to be a preaching of the gospel. Now, every service can have the gospel. I'm not saying that you can't present the gospel, but the number one reason of our weekly worship is to equip the saints, not to create new believers. And here's some of the scripture that I pulled out to support this. Hebrews 10, 23 through 24, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Colossians three twelve through 17, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ, to which you are also called in one body, rule your hearts, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him." And Acts 2, 46-47, every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So I'm not saying the church is not supposed to be evangelistic. That's not Mm -hmm. my point here. My point is that the evangelism happens outside the doors of the church. So... Primarily, definitely. Primarily, yes. I'm not saying you can't invite your unsaved friends and family to church. I'm just saying that it might get them an experience that they're not prepared for, because the primary purpose of meeting together is to is the fellowship of believers. And when you bring in an outsider, they're looking at it from the outside, even though they're inside. And they have to have met Christ and at least been presented with the gospel before what happens inside the doors of the church makes any sense to them. And I am not in any way saying that the hippies that were coming into Chuck Smith's church were not saved. I think it's evident from the way they present those services that they were probably more saved than the the longstanding (laughs) members of Chuck's church. But my point is that we have to be careful about the purpose of why we gather together as believers. It is the fellowship of the believers. It is to hold each other, to encourage each other in the faith, to admonish each other when we falter, and to be accountability partners and all of those things that help us be a stronger body in Christ. And when you bring an outsider into that without the, you know. Yeah. I'm not sure whether I'm articulating this right because I. No, I I think you are. Yeah. It really, it's, I mean, there's, what is the scripture about milk versus solid food? Mm-hmm. The churches that focus on bringing people in are, are really the milk. Yeah. They don't go deep into sanctification and becoming equipped to evangelize. Right. And the solid food churches are the, yeah, the others. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and I think that that's where you know the the seeker friendly churches possibly concern me some. It's like they're they're really great for getting people off the street and you know for the free coffee and the mm. and the great concert you know, but are they really being fed beyond a superficial understanding of what the gospel is and a great experience singing great worship music? Yeah, and I, I guess. I have been brought up in a long tradition of good teaching churches, you know, where you go and you just get poured into from in-depth teaching. And I can see how that's hard to sit through for young believers who possibly don't have the foundation upon which to to fit sitting through an hour-long sermon that is t- picking apart, mm. as, you know, t- two verses out of Hebrews. <laughs> I happen to really enjoy that, but not yeah. everybody does. But... <laughs> This is a process of growth, and I think that's that's where small groups and Sunday schools, if your church does those, where those come in, you know, to kind of bridge the gap. But you also need to be doing your evangelism on the streets outside your church, in the neighborhoods that around your church, and in the gatherings, you know, like sporting gatherings and other events where you can do open-air preaching. And that's where evangelism, I think, is best done. And I think that that's even shown in scripture, like when you follow Paul on his missionary journeys, he went to the churches to encourage the churches, and then he went out on the streets and in the in the squares and taught the gospel. So he didn't go to the churches to teach the gospel. He went to the churches to mm-hmm. encourage the believers, and then he stepped outside the churches to do the evangelism. Yeah. And I'm pointing fingers at myself because I am not good about doing the outside the church evangelism. It's yeah. not something that I'm strong at doing, but I feel that that is the calling to every believer that we shouldn't expect, you know, to bring our unsaved neighbors to church that they're, they're going to get introduced to Christ that way. We're supposed to be sharing Christ with them. And then when Christ finds them and changes their heart, that's when we introduce them to our churches. Exactly. There's a book that I want to throw a quick pitch in for here that talks exactly about the way that you're presenting it. It's mm-hmm. The book is called How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy by Sam Chan. Uh, it, it lays out how evangelism is a personal experience and how you can best evangelize by first becoming friends, uh, by bringing them into an environment where everybody is doing their best to live a Christ-like life. And getting them comfortable with the idea and and everything like that. And uh, I think you've really nailed it as far as the importance of the evangelism being a personal experience and and the equipping being a more family, a group experience. Mm -hmm. Evangelism does happen in one-on-one relationships, but I think it also happens in open-air preaching. I I know that there's a a lot of people, Mm -hmm. even like Andrew Rappaport, who is the leader of our Christian podcast community, he does a lot of open air preaching. And I think that that is something that is really believers should equip themselves to do, whether they are feel comfortable, they should at least be ready to do it. If they, Mm -hmm. they don't feel a calling to do it on a regular basis, to be able to just walk up to somebody you don't know and be able to reveal to them through scripture and through the, the application of the Ten Commandments and the law, how they fall short and how they are sinners and why they need God. Because I think that that is, before you get into the gospel about how Jesus loves you and gave his life for you, 
you have to prepare the soil because like you said with the, the parable of the soils and 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 I'm not saying that we prepare the soil I'm saying we are the instruments for of God used by God right. to prepare the soil but the soil has to be prepared if it, if you're just throwing the gospel at people and the soil is not prepared then they're not ready and Part of that preparation is helping to people to realize that they are sinners and they need God. And if we skip that crucial step, they can find a God, but they may not find the God that's actually saving them from their sins because they don't even know they need God. And that is an unprepared ground to throw the gospel at. But before we continue, once again, I'm going to interrupt myself because it's really hard to stop anywhere along here. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I want you to know that we really appreciate your feedback. As I mentioned earlier, you can join us on Discord and talk to Tim and I almost directly through chat. But you could also comment on our show notes, which for this episode will be at areyoujustwatching.com slash 138. You can call us at 513-818-2959 to leave a voicemail or text that number and we'll get a text. You can email feedback at areyoujustwatching.com or you can join us on Facebook or you can join me on Facebook since Tim has been on several year hiatus from Facebook now. <laughs> it's still plenty of keeping it going. <laughs> <laughs> By going to areyoujustwatching.com slash community. All right. So my last couple comments, and this is, I think, where possibly we're going to even divide a little bit more is, and, and we've kind of already talked about this briefly, is mm-hmm. they really present in this movie baptism as an experience. And almost like the point of salvation. Oh, yeah. And I really have a problem with that. I I do want to stress that there are a number of denominations that actually believe that the baptism is the literal point of salvation. Yeah. Incorrectly, I might add. (laughs) I have theological problems with that. I think baptism is very important. I'm currently go to a Baptist church, so I'm definitely not discounting baptism as an important thing. I do believe that baptizing little children is is problematic because I think that baptism should be an informed decision that you make as a proclamation of your changed life in Christ. It is a public demonstration of the rebirth that you have in Christ. But I don't think that if somebody dies before they're baptized and they were authentically saved, that they're going to hell because they didn't get baptized. I think that's proved by the salvation of the thief on the cross. Um, This day you shall be with me in paradise. He was not baptized. I think the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a lot more important than the baptism of water. (laughs) And um, (laughs) A little bit, yeah. Yeah, just a little bit. So I I have some theological issues with some of the presentation of the way they were doing baptism in this movie, and possibly in the very movement of the Jesus Revolution, since this was a portrayal of that. You know, the peer pressure of the altar call, the peer pressure of having hundreds and thousands of people watching you wade out into the water, and then have, you know, Lonnie ask you, have you made a decision for Christ? I mean, are you going to turn around and say no and wade back out? (laughs) Go ahead and dunk me, because then everybody will think that I'm saved. I bet there were people who walked out, but I I think you're right. I think they were the minority. Yeah. I'm not discounting that there were – I mean, it appears anyway that that Greg Lowry made a true decision there. But I don't know how often that was just for appearance sake. And it was, Mm -hmm. as Greg actually mentioned in the movie to his girlfriend, a concern of – 
will this just be like another drug? You know, it's here for a minute and then it's gone. And the the other thing that I have a problem with is this whole making a decision for Jesus. The the terminology of that is something that comes from, you know, this idea that you invite Jesus into your heart and some of this longstanding tradition of how we phrase accepting Christ, his free gift of salvation. And there's a really good sermon. I recommend everybody listen to it. It's actually, you can watch it on YouTube, but it it's more of a listening experience. I'm sure that most people are familiar with Ray Comfort and his Living Waters uh, ministry, and he does a ton of open air preaching. Yeah, he does. A long time ago, he did a sermon called Hell's Best Kept Secret. And it is a very good listen. It is, I think, almost an hour long. There's actually several versions of it, but I've posted the show notes, the URL to the the one he's got posted on his website at livingwaters.com. I would highly recommend that everybody listen to that because it is all about how we have made it kind of a shortcut for people to get saved without necessarily explaining to them what is actually happening. And by doing that, we shortcut them right past the authentic gospel and the authentic Christ into a a, a shortcut to hell. And that's the really the way he phrases it, you know, is that you, you give them the impression that by, they say this cutesy little prayer, and now they're saved. And they're not really saved because they weren't really presented with the authentic gospel. So, I know that from our previous discussion earlier that you may not necessarily agree with that from the standpoint of, you know, God saves who he will save. And I definitely agree with that. But at the same point, we are given the commission to share the gospel. And I think that includes sharing the correct gospels. Yeah. (laughs) And discipling people. No doubt. Yeah. And then to go further with that, I have a bit of an issue with the charismatic influences that possibly came out of the Jesus revolution and is still impacting churches today. And I fear, and I know that I'm not alone in these fears because I've been, you know, kind of tutored a little bit in this from some of my associations in the Christian podcast community, that these charismatic influences in the church are leading a lot of people astray it's putting an emphasis on experience over yeah. doctrine and music over the preaching of the word. And it's a scary movement in that not only do we have doctrine light churches now, but even the churches that have, from a denominational standpoint, actually authentic doctrine, the believers who sit in the pews are completely ignorant to that doctrine, completely unaware of false teachers that are creeping into the churches. And even though Jesus and the apostles, especially Apostle Paul, warned us over and over again in the New Testament to beware of false teachers in the in the end times, mm-hmm. that they would come in and lead the sheep astray, our churches have such a lack of discernment that they're not paying attention to the false teaching that is creeping into the churches. And it scares me because I'm in a church right now it is going through a study about how to hear God outside of the Bible. Oh. How to listen to God through, you know, the experiences that you go through with, you okay. know, people around you and all this kind of stuff. And I go to a Baptist church. This is creeping. This has been in the Baptist church for like 30 years now. And, huh. and it's I had no scary. Idea. 
Yeah, it's Blackaby's Experiencing God. I haven't actually read the content, but I've seen enough reviews of it to be highly wary of the content. And there may be some good stuff in it. My pastor actually said from the pulpit that, how did he phrase it? He says, "There's a there might be people in this church who have theological concerns with this Bible study, but there's a lot of really good meaty stuff in it. And I'm thinking, that's like eating ice cream to get calcium. It's like, you don't necessarily... <laughs> Is there a problem with that? <laughs> well, I don't know. Calcium's if not the main vanilla, ingredient. If it's vanilla, it's okay, right? It's the same color. <laughs> so anyway, all of these experiential things, you know, of, of seeking the voice of God outside of the Bible. Right. I'm sorry. As a, as a Bible-believing Christian, I believe the way you hear God is by reading your Bible. When we look for God outside of the Bible, we are relying on our heart to discern whether we're actually hearing God's voice or not. We're not right. using the Bible, we're using our heart and our experience and those kind of things. And so I'm going to round us back around to a verse that we have used so many times, I've lost count. It's got to be in our top five. Yeah, Jeremiah 17, 8 through 10. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, examine the mind. I test the heart to give to each according to his way according to what his actions deserve. So my concern and my caution here is that as Christians, we should be very discerning, very alert, Mm -hmm. very cautious about the doctrines and the teachings and the songs that we allow inside our churches, because there is false teachers out there. God warned us they were going to come, and they have come, and they are prominent in our churches today. And if we do not have the discernment to see it. I'm not saying that there are going to be people who lose their salvation over this, because I think that once you're saved, you are saved, and God saves his chosen. He, I believe God is sovereign over all of that, but he wouldn't have warned us about false teachers if we weren't supposed to be alert to it right. and to guard against it in our churches, because it does lead people astray. The sheep are easily swayed <laughs> in, in various directions. Yeah. I just want to stress, and I suspect you'll agree with me, there are theologically sound charismatic churches. It's just that they focus on Scripture as being the Word of God and the only source of inspiration in our lives. I don't disagree with the Pentecostal charismatic movements in general, but I have met a good number of truly earnest, dedicated Christians in that church. So for me, it comes back to the question of cessationism versus continuism. (laughs) Yeah. And I I know we've discussed before. That old little argument. Yeah. And, you know, next time we'll solve that one. But um, I I am a cessationist and dedicated one. (laughs) Yeah. But... You know, there are plenty of folks who are not. So for my part, we just need to change what we can and accept what we can't. Mm -hmm. We need to encourage people in Christ. Yeah. And trust that the Spirit will lead them the right way if it's His will to do so. Yeah. And I think that that is important then for me to bring up this verse, 1 John 4, 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. There is a spirit 
that can seem like it's from God and it can be not God. And that's why mm-hmm. we have Absolutely. been cautioned in scripture to test the spirits. And so much was made about the Asbury revival. And to me, I'm, I'm, I don't really think revival is the right word for what was going on at Asbury. Really? I think it was more of a, just an, a, an ongoing worship service where they were singing a lot of music. Because from what I understand, there was not a, any preaching. It was all just ongoing music and testimonies. Asbury's actually known for this. They say that it was a student-led revival, but it's almost an expected student-led revival. It was kind of like a a timing thing. It's like every generation has to have their revival at Asbury. It's like the third one, okay. I think. And it is part of, you know, this this charismatic necessity to have revivals. They mm. they feel like they have to have a revival to get the spirit moving again. And I have a problem with that from the standpoint is, yes, we all need a little bit of revival. And I mean revival from the aspect of we need to feel God working in our lives. And we get away from reading our Bible. We get away from possibly good Christian fellowship. We let the world sneak in. We get involved in watching movies and and TV shows and sports and all the other things that we supplant God with in our lives. And we need a revival of the Spirit in which we remember that we are saved and that God is wanting us to spend time with Him. And we are revived in Spirit by spending time with Him. But I think, and I've always felt a little bit like this, because Baptists are kind of big on revivals too. I'm always a little cautious about that because it just becomes emotion. And in it's emotion driven by oftentimes music and just the experience of being together. And I think we should be expecting that all the time. If we're in church and we are part of a an active fellowship of the body, we shouldn't need to go to a revival to be revived. I think that a good sermon should revive us. A, a, a lengthy marathon of Bible reading should revive us. <laughs> But we all, as Christians, if we are truly saved, we already have the Holy Spirit living in us. We don't need to go to some big music fellowship going on in some college to be revived in the Spirit. We should be able to just pick up our Bible and be revived in the Spirit because the Spirit's already in us. I don't know. I had some qualms about that. I don't I don't necessarily think anybody was saved at Asbury's revival. I think it was... It may have been a, a heartfelt worship service where students were just willing to, you know, sing and, and just experience mm-hmm. God together for a while. And, and I think that, you know, it became a big deal because, you know, it got out that it was happening and then people flooded to it because they wanted to meet the spirit. And I mean, even though it was close to me, I could have easily gone. I just, you know, it's not one of those situations where I feel a need to go to a revival service. I'd rather just, you know, pick up the Bible or listen to a really deep, doctrinally rich sermon. And I'm wondering how well a revival would have gone if they'd had some deep theologian stand up and preach for five hours, whether Uh. it would have maintained that experiential. Let Let me ask you this. How do you think that the Ashbury Revival was different from like the revivals in the the 18th and 19th centuries like Jonathan Edwards or you know early Spurgeon well, revivals I suspect the preaching of the word would be the biggest one okay 
Yeah, because it, really it was preaching, specifically preaching, moving from city to city and drawing in huge crowds. Right. Whereas this was just like a a long worship service, Hillsong worship service. Yes, um, Hillsong but especially, again, Hillsong and Bethel and all yeah. of those songs that are all about how wow, God is making me feel great. <laughs> It, that, again, gets back to our primary difference of opinion here, which is I think that that is intended to be effective exactly how God wants it to be effective. But I also – and this is what kicks it – I also think you're right. We are responsible to not do that. <laughs> <laughs> so we know that that's not solid food. Right. We know it's milk. Right. But I think it's my comfort that milk is there for a purpose, you know? Yeah. Beyond being milk, it can also be just an emotional high. And I guess my concern is, is how many apostates do we form by giving them emotional highs mm -hmm. that put them up on that mountaintop? And then when they get down in that valley, they're not prepared for it because they thought that being a follower of a Christ meant this emotional high all the time. And and I think I may have even have said this to a few friends about Asbury. It's like, how many of them are going to walk away from that service and try to find a church where they can get that same emotional, what they call spiritually rich feeling of worship at another church? And, and they can't find it because it's not what was at Asbury. Yeah. And then they completely walk away from the fellowship of believers because they can't reacquire that emotional high that they got at the Asbury revival. And I'm not saying that if they were truly saved that they're walking away from Christ. I'm saying that right. they 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 didn't actually experience the spirit. They experienced an emotional high that made them think that they experienced the spirit. And then when they can't recreate that, it's like what Greg was calling you know, the, the drug high in exactly. this movie. And that is my concern above everything else is that these kind of emotionally driven experiences are not actually preaching the gospel of Christ and turning people away from it because they have, as, in, as Hebrews 6 says, they've tasted it, they've experienced it, they haven't, haven't actually become a Christian. They haven't actually taken that next step of accepting the free gift of salvation and become justified. And so they walk away because the experience was great, but not lasting. Yeah. That's my concern. It's not that I in any way think that one. God cannot use it. It's that my heart is burdened for by the multitude of people who are probably turned away from the gospel because of it. Mm -hmm. The It's only the, the few that the seed fell on fertile ground. <laughs> yep. All right. So, you know, we may not necessarily agree completely about this, but I think that we're right. mostly on the same page. So yeah. it's... I highly encourage those of you who have made it this far in our discussion to check out the Theology Throwdown that is done monthly by our uh, podcast community. We tend to have these kind of theological debates. Uh, I know we've discussed baptism. We've discussed communion. I suspect some of these other things that have come up in this discussion about secessionists. 
<laughs> Secessionism versus continuism? Yes, that uh-huh. will probably come up in a in a future podcast of the Theology Throwdown. So if you haven't ever listened to one of those, I highly encourage you to look them up on the Christian Podcast Community. They are a good listen. Yeah. I enjoy taking part because I get to learn stuff that I didn't know sometimes. I would like to take part sometimes, but unfortunately, it is scheduled the same time as my diaconate meeting every yeah. month. Every month. Yeah, it's always the first first Monday. Yep. So anyway, I do highly encourage you check that out for some more interesting debates on disagreements that Christians can hold in a Christian-like manner and disagree with love and affection for each other. And so with that, I will tell you that I believe our next review is going to be on the new Dungeons and Dragons movie, which is coming out the end of March. And we hope to be able to review that for April. If that changes, I will let you know on our Facebook and Discord groups. And so one of the things I'm looking forward to talking about is the Dungeons and Dragons Satanism scare that you and I both grew up with and yeah. <laughs> and how it's seen by our listeners today. So I'd love to see some commentary. Yeah. On that in Facebook and Discord and and maybe even a voicemail. That would be cool. Yeah. That would be really cool or a text, yeah, or an email. One of the, yeah. any of one of those. So I know that there are quite a few Christians of my generation who, you know, play role-playing games today. So it's definitely something I think people feel strongly about on both sides. So we'd love to hear what people think about that. Yep. But for now, we thank you so much for listening. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And don't just watch. The Christian Podcast Community is a cohesive group of like-minded Christian podcasters proclaiming the truths of Christ with expertise and passion in the areas of theology, church history, Christian living, evangelism, apologetics, parenting, homeschooling, sermons, and much, much more. So check us out at ChristianPodcastCommunity.org. One stop for all your favorite Christian podcasts, ChristianPodcastCommunity.org.